Welcome to the Bleed Bulimia podcast with guest Jessica Setnick, eating disorder specialist. Hi, everyone. I am Laurieann. I am the host of Bleep Bulimia. And today I welcome Jessica Setnick, and she's an eating disorder specialist. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So I'm going to start off by asking what brought you into uh, becoming an eating disorder specialist? What prompted you? So I'm an accidental dietitian. I was in school planning to get a degree in anthropology, even though I couldn't quite figure out how I was going to make that into a career, but that's what I was taking classes in. And then I took nutrition as an elective because my friend told me it would be an easy A, which it wasn't, but that's why I started taking nutrition. And as soon as I started taking it, I felt like this is so fascinating. What happens to food once it goes inside your body? I really didn't know that much about it. And I thought it was so interesting that there are these processes that happen without you even having any conscious control because in my mind, I had thought you had to consciously control what you eat so carefully, not even realizing that that was part of my eating disorder at that point. And so I took nutrition, but what I felt was missing was the piece of the anthropology piece. So the idea of how humans develop and how cultures influence your eating and things like that. It wasn't just the science of nutrition, but there was more to it than that. And so what I found was that even though I think all those aspects of nutrition and the the aspects of your culture and how you make your food choices and how you feel before you eat and how you feel after you eat and the psychology of eating. I feel like that belongs in all areas of nutrition. Really at the time I was going to school in you know, the 1990s, the only area where it was really kosher to talk about those things was in the eating disorder field. So that drew me into eating disorders. And it was only later that I realized I had had my own eating disorder, but I was one of those people who like many look at sort of the criteria for eating disorders and say, well, mine was never that bad. And so you sort of minimize it and it feels like, well, I just had a problem, but it wasn't really an eating disorder. And it took a long time during my career for me to realize that I had had an eating disorder. And it seems obvious now that that would be an area of interest for me, but I really didn't realize that at the time that the things that intrigued me about nutrition were really the things that I feel like helped me heal at the same time from my own eating disorder. So really interesting. Like you, I took anthropology and and like, and I was just fascinated by it, but I knew it wasn't going to take me anywhere. Neither did art history, but I took both of those. In that, I was also interested in that whole aspect as well, because they talk about, you know, men and back in, you know, Neanderthal days and the homo homo, homo sapiens, like they changed over and the different kinds of foods that they were eating. I found that fascinating. I find it neat that you've actually were saying that part of that component coming into it was of interest to you as well. Yeah, and I actually know three dietitians who have degrees in anthropology. And interestingly, all three of us specialize in the eating disorder field. So I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's a different way of looking at things than than how eating disorders are often conceptualized professionally. I think that we have a different sort of, it's more of the, sort of, I think of an anthropologist as someone who, you know, goes in and tries to live with a people and tries to really learn their ways and not press their own perspective onto those people. And I feel like in a lot of ways, health professionals, we're trying to press our own perspective onto people and say, do these things differently, do these things better. And I feel like eating disorder dietitians really want to immerse ourselves into the lives of the person or the eating life of the person that we're working with and say, what's working for you? What's not working for you? 
I don't want to interfere until we have an understanding of what's already going on and, and which aspects you actually want help for me and where I can fit in, as opposed to just coming in and saying, oh, you're doing it wrong. You need to do it differently. So I do think that the anthropology background makes a big difference. That's really neat. I really love that for bringing that up. That's the first. So that's interesting. And now you have an eating disorders boot camp that you created. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Love to hear about it. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So eating disorders boot camp is a workshop that I started. And this is going to make me sound really old, but when I started working in the field as a dietitian in a, an eating disorder program in a hospital, I it was really the dawn of the internet. And so there was nothing, no search engine where you could really look up anything of use, right? There was probably Google, but there was nothing out there to find when you Googled something. And so we didn't even call it Googling back then. It was Netscape and all these different things. And so what it was like to be a dietitian at that time, if you were, let's say, a general dietitian, I'm just going to pick a random state, let's say Iowa. If you were a dietitian in Iowa and you woke up in the morning, got to work and saw that on your census, there was an individual with an eating disorder and that wasn't your specialty area and you didn't know what to do, you literally would have to get on the phone, call information, ask for another hospital. Let's say you're in Northern Iowa and you're asking for what, could I have a hospital in Southern Iowa? And then you get that number, you call, you ask the operator for the nutrition department, you ask the nutrition department secretary, is there a dietitian there that specializes in eating disorders that could give me some advice? They say no, you hang up. Now you have to call the information again, try to get another hospital, go through that whole process. Well, what happened when we sort of had this ability to connect over the internet is that all of the dietitians in the country were all on one listserv based out of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And so what that dietitian in Iowa could do that just changed everything is get to work in the morning, see there's a patient with an eating disorder on their floor, type into the computer, can someone please help me? And by the time she left, did her job, came back down for lunch and checked her email, there would be a response from someone like me saying, hey, give me a call, I can help you out. And so through that process, I became known around the country, maybe even further than that, as someone who could help people when they had someone under their care that had an eating disorder, especially someone who was a teen or a child, which was, you know, PEDS is a, is a fringe part of dietetics, and then PEDS eating disorders is a fringe of a fringe, so there really weren't a lot of us out there, and so the idea that there was someone that could help me that really knows what they're doing and can walk me through it was fantastic. It just changed everything, and so it wasn't very long before I started being asked to give presentations, and, you know, of course, this was before you could do anything on, on the internet, so it was all um, you know, at conferences and things like that. And so the more you speak at conferences, the more people hear you, the more you get known and asked to speak again. And so that's how it rolled. And what I realized was there was so little information out there. People were just craving it. I thought I will start my own workshop. And because when you give an hour long presentation at a conference, how much can you really cover? If I did a day and a half training, I could really get into the meat of what people needed, the practical stuff. And so I started eating disorders bootcamp, not knowing it would end up being sort of a phenomenon. I just thought I'd do one workshop and eight dietitians came, but I had publicized it on that same listserv for the whole nation. And so people would email me and say, you know, I'm not going to be able to make it to your workshop in Dallas, but would you ever bring your workshop to Montana, which I had never thought of, but i, I you know, why not? So that's how it got going is I started doing this workshop wherever people would say, we, you know, if you had a space for me to go and people you thought would like to attend, 
So I did it about 40 times. And after a while, I realized I didn't like saying the same things over and over again. So I recorded it and then it became a product people could buy. And then I started getting emails and calls about things like, um, oh, I love the manual from bootcamp. I refer to it every day. I carry it around with me or my intern borrowed mine and never gave it back. Could I have another one? And I thought, this is a three ring binder. This is not a convenient thing to be carrying around. So I came up with the idea to do the eating disorders clinical pocket guide, which was small. So every step kind of became something that led into the next thing. And so eating disorders bootcamp now is three workshops that have all been recorded and put together with all my books. It's a big package. And you know, when I stopped doing boot camps, remember I said I recorded them, so I didn't, I wasn't traveling anymore. That was in 2007. I think it never occurred to me that I would start doing them again because I thought for sure eating disorders is going to get rolled into the curriculum. Like that just was the obvious thing that made sense to me. And so to realize whenever it was 2016 that I got a call, would you ever start doing boot camps again? We really need you. And to start doing it again, it was, I never expected to do it again because. But it hadn't been incorporated into anyone's curriculum. And so it's really very, very needed. And I think anyone who is experiencing an eating disorder and has been to see a professional who had no idea of what they were talking about or said things that were stigmatizing or triggering or just wrong understands there is a huge need for education of professionals. And so that's really what I'm trying to do. I, I feel like, that, no, we cannot prevent every eating disorder, but we could be doing a better job than we are. And so after a number of years in private practice, I realized that I needed to, to be out there more and I wasn't able to sort of, you know, have the office hours that individuals needed from me. And so I started to not accept new clients and then over time closed my practice. And now that's what I do exclusively is um, educate, give presentations and do phone and video consultations with professionals who want guidance. So it's a good fit for me. And I feel like I'm making a lot of headway, even though sometimes, you know, things remind me that it's such a slow process of change, you know, to change big systems, but that's what I do. And, and I'm not giving up. That's wonderful. It's actually interesting that you were saying in 2016, because if you look at it, that sort of coincides with all the, um, you know, Instagram and, and a lot of that and the Facebook Now, granted Facebook was what 2004, but by 2016, they had so much social media with, they were stating, uh, last I was reading, it was phenomenal how it increased the, uh, the eating disorders in, in young people. And I don't think that it helped with the older people, like I said, midlife bulimics, people who've been struggling for 30 years or starting in their forties, uh, because there's just so much about, you know, looks and appearances aging. and yeah. aging. Oh my goodness. You know, what cream that you're going to have or whatever. Um, yeah. So that's really interesting. I just found that, but you know, it did, you're talking about aging yourself. Oh my goodness. Like at 18 years old for me, that was in 1980 and uh, there was nothing and we didn't have the internet, but you'd go to the library, you'd write around, you'd be looking and it was just next to impossible more on uh, there was some stuff on anorexia because with the death of Karen Carpenter, it became a little bit more okay. known. Nothing on bulimia. There was just, it was just a little tiny segment somewhere that they didn't know anything about. I'm really glad you mentioned Karen Carpenter. Karen Carpenter was from Dallas, right? So this is all like tying back together. Karen Carpenter um, died in 1985, I believe. And the only reason I know that is because I was, you know, you listen to like the 80s channel on the radio and you know they do the the top songs from 1985 and then in between every few songs they give a snippet about what was happening 
happening in the culture at that time. And I remember hearing one of those probably about five years ago. And they said, Karen Carpenter, you know, died this year in 1985. And I thought as the next song started to play, I thought, well, that explains a lot. I mean, if Karen Carpenter only died in 1985, and that's only been like 30 something years ago, then well, okay, that makes sense that there hasn't been a lot of progress, let's say, on eating disorders. And I may have the year wrong. It might have been 1982, but something like that. It sort of made it real to me. Within my lifetime, it made it real that, wow, there hasn't been that much time to do that much research on it. So maybe that's why we don't have a lot of answers. We don't have a lot of cures. And then after the next couple of songs and they came on to do the next snippet, they said, this was the year that the first case of HIV was diagnosed in the U.S. Yes. And then I was pissed because I was like, well, apparently there's plenty of time. And I do not begrudge any research dollars or research efforts that have gone into helping to take care of people with HIV and AIDS. Please don't misunderstand. I think that is money well spent and time well spent and resources well spent. But there could also have been that money, time and resources well spent on eating disorders. And there haven't been. And the, the research base for eating disorders is, is biased and racist and doesn't include anyone of any size or any genders. I mean, it's just, it's a mess. And it just made me realize, wow, I guess 30 something years is enough. If you have the resources behind you to make a dent, probably there's also a difference between HIV being a, you know, medical illness versus eating disorders. But I think eating disorders are far more medical than anyone gives them credit for. But the idea that they're being treated as a mental illness is part of what has made progress so slow. And so it just, oh, it really riled me. So as soon as you mentioned Karen Carpenter, that's what I thought of was that just realizing like, yeah, it hasn't been a long time that, you know, eating disorders have been in the public consciousness, but it's been long enough that we, we should have better information and better care than what we have right now. Oh, I sound so angry. No, <laughs> no it's okay. It, 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 it was, I, I will have to say, I know it was 1982 because I remember I was, I, was okay, two years, I was two years into my bulimia and I was so grateful that I felt like I wasn't alone. Now, granted, I know she was like anorexic bulimic and so a little bit different, but at least the bulimia. I don't think there. it's different. I don't think it's different. I think the idea that we even name eating disorders based on the outward symptoms it just, it, it puts people in categories and boxes yeah. and there's people who restrict and compensate and overdo all in the same day, all in the same hour. So, you know, to, to name each of those as a different disorder seems absurd to me. So, but thank you for correcting my year. It was 1982. Yeah. It was the yeah. same year that unfortunately Karen Carpenter was lost and the first case of HIV came out and look at the direction we've gone in those 30 something years and how wonderful that we have so many treatments for HIV and AIDS, and yet we're still really in the dark ages when it comes to eating disorders, unfortunately. Which is not to say there's not a message of hope, but as far as the science, the science has not, has failed us, I'll say that. Actually, I wanted to say it's kind of funny because of course, Karen Carpenter kind of brought the knowledge of the anorexia, bulimia, and eating disorder, and Rock Hudson was the one that blew out the whole, mm -hmm. You know, it took right. somebody who was known for it to really become yeah. a, a yeah. house, almost household yeah. name type of thing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that you're right, too. I mean, I don't know if we've tapped into and I know that this is just my opinion, but is there some sort of um, genetics that go along with people with bulimia? Because I look at, you know, my family, I didn't know, but my aunt and I mean, you know, she's since passed away. She was in her 80s, but she struggled with bulimia. 
And that was years ago. And how much of that and how much was going on? And is it something that genetically is passed down? I don't know because I'm not into the medical side of it, but I've thought about that. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that, you know, more than genes are passed on in families, right? So there's stress and learned behavior and traumatic events and things like that. So it can't be 100% genetic in all cases, but in many cases, absolutely, there are genes and they haven't necessarily been identified as this is the gene for bulimia. It's more like, um, for example, there's a doctor here in Dallas who does DNA testing of individuals with eating disorders. Usually people who've been through lots of treatments, haven't found any relief and maybe have had some family members. So again, it sort of points to maybe there possibly is something in the genes and he'll look for a DNA mutation. And some of the things that he finds are things that affect, let's say, satiety chemicals. So one example that he gave um, was an individual who, and multiple individuals, I think, have this mutation where they they will eat, but even though their stomach is getting full, the stretch receptors in their stomach are feeling stretched, their brain message is still, I need to eat more, I need to eat more because of the chemicals that are communicating or failing to communicate between stomach and brain in a healthy individual. And so what happens is that person feels this message, I need to eat more, I need to eat more, but yet their stomach is getting overly, overly full. And so it makes sense that that person would, might feel the need to eat so much that they then feel like they have to get rid of it and maybe even eat more after that. And so there are, it's not a a gene for bulimia because like I said, naming disorders after the behaviors that you see from the disorder is really not, pointing to the origin of the disorder. It's really not pointing to the root of the problem, right? So there may be a million people who experience compensatory behaviors after eating, but there may be a million different pathways to that problem. It doesn't mean they'll respond to the same treatment. And so to me, if you're talking about someone who has a physiological issue with communication with their stomach and their brain, they need treatment for that specific thing. If you have someone else who is having, let's say they're eating because it, it triggers sort of an opioid-like response in their brain, they're using it as a mood-altering chemical, then they need a different kind of treatment. And so that's where, yes, absolutely, there are genetic and physiological reasons for the development of bulimia, but it's ne- not ever going to be like, there's one gene and that's the bulimia gene. It's going to be a matter of, there's different categories of genes that have different effects that then lead to uh, bulimic behavior. That's really interesting. It's, it's a lot more complex than we'd like it to be. <laughs> yeah. And it's way more complex than just the bad choice, which is what a lot of people still think it is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's wonderful to, uh, to have people out there like you seriously. And I keep thinking, you know, you go on and you do see, um, you know, when you Google it, you do see quite a few things now, but still not as much as I'm like, I'm surprised there's not more information out there. So I really, I'm so Great. glad that, uh, that we found each other on Podmatch. Let's put a shout out. Same. Right. And, and I'm not sure when, when this will air, but we're recording it during Eating Disorders Awareness Week. And I, I do feel like I see a little bit of a difference this week, this year in Eating Disorders Awareness Week, which is, it seems a little more grassrootsy to me than rather than the big organizations putting out their sort of pronouncements and then going quiet for the rest of the year. I feel like it's really the people in the trenches who are spreading the word. And I hope that that continues because I think that has a huge impact. Beautiful. And so 
in regards to so your your um, eating disorders a boot camp is primarily for professionals right that's what you're focusing Correct. on it is every once in a while when i was in practice someone would call and say they wanted to enroll their family member with an eating disorder and eating disorders boot camp and i would always think oh my god what kind of program do you think this is but um but no it is for professionals it's educational i do have a workbook for individuals called food fairy tales and that one is more about looking deep, deeply into your childhood experiences and the messages you receive from the outside world that then influence your eating behaviors, your beliefs about food, your food rules, your body thoughts, those kind of things. And it's tough to take a deep dive on your own. I, I feel like it's helpful to talk, talk it through with someone else, but a lot of people aren't ready. They still feel that shame. I mean, that's my big mission in life is to take away the shame that people feel about talking about their eating and, and so that people can get help because it's just hard to help yourself. You can, but it's, it's hard to get there when you don't have another pair of eyes kind of looking at things. But for people who aren't ready to talk about it with another human, I made the workbook to sort of help you gather your thoughts and look at what may be going on under the surface, help you realize it's not your bad behavior. It's not a choice you just woke up and made to be destructive. There's pieces of the puzzle of you that started before you were born, that started before your parents were born or your caregivers. And all of that adds up to the place you are now. And so some of that can be detangled. You know, granted, you may not be able to change your genes, but there's a lot of external stuff that we use to guide our eating. And you can start to unravel that just by doing some writing or whatever expression the, the book says, you know, the workbook says you don't have to write it down, whatever expressive method, method works for you. But once you start to see it, then you can decide which parts you want to share with another person, or if you want to try to work through it on your own. So I do have that for individuals, because like I said, I no longer see individuals in practice, but I do feel like there are people who are not ready to see someone else or to talk about it out loud who've been shamed or whatever the case may be. And so, um, yeah, so I try to help in that way by having some guidance. Let's say it's a guided workbook. I love that. And, and you're right about the shame. There was one of my, um, my guests on here. I was, uh, she had never spoken to her bulimia before and she agreed to be on. And then she thanked me later on. She goes, you know what? And, and she had been quite a few years uh, recovered already but she didn't want anybody. She thought they would change people's perception of her if they even knew she ever had one. And uh, now she's out there speaking about it and, uh, and she, you know, came over and realized. Amazing. That, uh, Amazing. And that made me feel so good. And that's what this program is about is to, and, and in your yeah. case, I know that we do have, you know, professionals that are being, that do listen to it as well. So it's great for them to know that you're, uh, that you have this availability to them. And I love that uh, food fairy tale. Definitely. Uh, something that I know that our listeners are going to want to listen to. And we can, we can link to them in the show notes and I yeah. can come up with a, with a discount code that will bring the price down. So we'll put all that in the show notes. Let's do that. That sounds perfect. I really appreciate this and, and your time for being on the podcast and, and sharing your wisdom as well. And um, like I said, for every person I have on here, it's really a, a reach out to those people who are struggling, whether it's bulimia or eating disorders, knowing that there's help there and professionals who need, you know, more information. Here we go. We've got beautiful Jessica. Yeah. And you know what, let me say one more thing, which is just simply that if someone listening does want to find a professional to help them, but doesn't really know how to start, it, it is challenging to find someone who is eating disorder savvy and kind. And I know a lot of those people. 
So if you want to get in touch with me, we can put my email address in the show notes and I'm happy to try to link you with someone in your area or who's available by, um, you know, by phone or video um, for you, because I do know that it, it can be a little challenging if you're just out there Googling eating disorder professional, you don't really know what you're getting. And so I'm happy to try to point you in the right direction. That's wonderful. And just before we go, I know that we're going to have in the show notes, but can you just speak to where somebody can find you? Yes, absolutely. So my um, umbrella webpage where people can uh, book a consultation. Now, of course, that's a professional consultation, so I don't want to mislead anyone. Um, you know, see about my speaking to come to your event, that kind of thing. That's jessicasetnick.com. And then eatingdisordersbootcamp.com is the website for the training workshop. And foodfairytales.com is the website for that workbook. So, um, and my email address is jessica at jessicasetnik.com. So I'm pretty easy to find um, and I would love to connect. I know that that sounds weird to see someone on YouTube and then say, oh yeah, send me an email. But I really don't have a problem with it. If it's something I could answer in five minutes versus you Googling it for three hours, I'd rather just offer you the help. That's wonderful. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for offering that. And my pleasure. Thank you again for being here. Take care. And great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. Be sure to visit me at bleepbulimia.com.